0: You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. We're going through the Book of Romans uh, today. We're going to do one book of the Bible every week until the first Sunday in December uh, for a whole year. If you're new here, we've been doing a different book of the Bible, different overview sermon of all 66 books of the scriptures. Uh, the book of Romans, some pastors take like seven or eight years. I'm like, I'm not exaggerating. Have had taken seven or eight years to work through the book. We're going to do it in one sermon. Uh, so please don't see this as sufficient. Please, on your own, read the book and try to get more out of the book than just one short sermon can actually entail. Uh, again, thanks for being here. Uh, for those of you that are the non-tailgate early crowd, uh, it's good to have you all here uh, before all the festivities begin today in Tallahassee. Our baptism Sunday is October 3rd. Just want to reiterate that. I would love for you if you've never been baptized before to sign up for that day. It's gonna be an outside baptism after each of our services on October 3rd. So maybe before you've seen the baptism up here, the kind of big pool, makes you a little nervous thinking about standing in front of all these people and the lights and all that and getting baptized. Maybe it's a little intimidating to you, whatever it might be. I understand that. Well, that day's a great day because we'll be outside in a pool with just our church family out there celebrating uh, that day. So you've never been baptized before, and by that I mean as a believer, I would love for you to sign up by going to citychurchtallahassee.com baptism uh, to be part of Baptism Sunday on October 3rd. We're excited for it. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in to the book of Romans. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that through your word, we see your love for us, uh, that you so loved the world, you sent your only son to die for your people. Lord, what an amazing thing that you love the world and you acted on that by sending Jesus to be the one who would forgive our sins through his death and resurrection. So we ask that your love will compel us to want to live our lives for you, to love you and love others as you be with all the churches in our community as they gather today. And also that you keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. Let us be faithful to the scriptures and faithful to who you are and what you've revealed to us from your word as you speak through me this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Gospel Coalition says this, which is a helpful resource website, just kind of out of the gate. The theme of Romans is the revelation of God's judging and saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Christ, God judges sin and yet at the same time manifests his saving mercy. That's what's so incredible about the Christian story. We see God as the one who is holy, the one who will punish sin, and at the exact same time, without any contradiction, we see God also as the one who is loving, forgiving, and compassionate. And the only way that can make sense is through the cross of Christ, where God punishes sin by Jesus being the one who never sinned, who took on sin for us, and as a result, also shows his mercy by not punishing us as our sins deserve. We're going to see that all over the 16th chapter book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul. And in 1 through 4, we first see that God reveals his righteousness. Chapters 1 through 4, So I think the best way to summarize those first four chapters in and, and one kind of sentence is that God reveals his righteousness. See, every single human being on the face of the earth Every single person throughout history is trapped in sin, and therefore we're also under sin's penalty, and we need to be rescued, we need to be forgiven, we need to have our sin pardoned. It's a desperate state that every single person in the world finds themselves in apart from Jesus. So Paul wrote this, so I am eager to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to you also who are in Rome. I want to preach the gospel to you churches who can then go and preach the good news of the gospel to others. He's eager to bring them good news in a world with lots of bad news. Now let's think about that. How much bad news is around us right now? Everywhere. I mean, just turn on the TV. Just do a five-second scroll through your phone on your social media feed. There's bad news all over the place. It's discouraging just to turn the TV on, just to go to your social media. It's just bad news over and over and over again. And here is Paul eager 2,000 years ago when there was lots of bad news still to bring them good news. He says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not. I'm going to draw a line in the sand and be courageous for who Jesus is because it is the power of God for salvation because I know this to be true, but I don't think Jesus is an imaginary friend or a mascot or the force from Star Wars or, or just somebody to grab onto and have him take the wheel You know, when something goes bad. I really believe he is the one he claimed to be, so I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's a power of salvation to everyone who believes. It's for all who will come to faith. First to the Jew, God made a promise to Abraham, but that promise is extended also to the Greek, to the Gentiles. For his, For in it, in this good news of the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Then he quotes the Old Testament. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So for those who claim to be Christians, it's important that we first and foremost see that faith for us is not some abstract idea. It's not kind of like you know Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz where you close your eyes and hit your heels together and say there's no place like home. It's not some kind of superstition is what I mean. Faith for us is actually a person and that person is Jesus Christ. Righteousness for us is not simply a good deed or the absence of bad deeds or just simply living morally. No, righteousness for us is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And then he gets really serious about the human problem and makes the case really for our guilt. He says, for God's wrath, which is a real thing in the scriptures, is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Rather than giving their lives to the truth, they suppress it. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, why? Because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. It's called natural revelation. There's two kinds of ways God speaks to us, to let us, let us know who he is. The first is natural revelation, which is go drive on the Blue Ridge Parkway, go to the beach, see a baby being born. Those are evidences that there is a God and that we're not God. It's not simple enough just to say there is a God. The only conclusion after that is there's a God and I'm not him. Like, I am not the creator. There is one who is greater than me. And there's also what's called special revelation, which is God speaking to us through the scriptures. So here, Paul in Romans 1 is making the case by natural revelation that God exists and our guilt before him. Because none of us can deny there is a creator. You can be on a deserted island somewhere and still understand that there is something and you are not that something. That there actually is a God. And he says, as a result, people are without excuse. You say, well, that might not sound very fair. Well, thankfully, Paul keeps going. For they knew God. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, and here's the they indict themselves, all of us, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, which our age certainly does. They became fools, and here's what they did even though there's a natural revelation, even though there's a God and I am not him, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They made statues resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. You see the glory of God in creation, and rather than submitting your lives to that, you instead build up a man-made statue and you claim that to be God they exchange the worship of the true God for the exchange of man-made things. And it's easy for me to, and all of us, I know, to think that we're too sophisticated for that. If that was an ancient thing, we don't do that anymore. You know, we're much more enlightened than that. We would never build a statue and worship it. But the way we make worship exchanges is through maybe less tangible things. God, I don't want to worship you. I want to worship a feeling. I want to worship applause, admiration. I, I want to have that. I, I want to feel that. I want to achieve that, so I'm going to believe these lies that i got to go around you for the things I'm looking for, not actually to you. Even though I know you're real, I'm going to make an exchange. An exchange worship of you for the worship of something else, usually the worship of myself. Here he is saying is the problem with the human race and the bad news is we have made a worship exchange. And then the first thought often people have is, well, let me just get better. Let me just improve, try harder, be more religious, be more moral, and he addresses that. Because the temptation for the Jewish audience reading this was to think they just kinda need to lock into their Jewishness a little more. He goes, well, hold on. For a person, chapter two, is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person who is, a, is a Jew who is one inwardly, and a circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. And the goal of this person's praise is not from people, but from God. What's he saying here? He's saying what God's looking for is a work being done on your heart. Not merely some external conformity to the rules of this age. That God actually wants to do something inside of you that produces change. So the real markings of, we could say, Christian spirituality is not that you've been outwardly circumcised rather that it's happened inside your heart that God has actually done a work and then he's making the case these first four chapters there's things he quotes in the old testament in romans three he says there's no one righteous not even one there's no one who understands there's no one who seeks God all have turned away all alike have become worthless there are romans one people there's no one who does what is good not even one He's not saying that people don't do any good by the standards of this world. He's not saying that no one's ever done a humanitarian effort or something along those lines. What he's saying is God's not impressed with those things because they don't forgive sin. They don't forgive sin. There's no one who is seeking God because of the depravity of our hearts. Instead, we're seeking after ourselves and our own glory. And he gives the reason why, verse 18. He says there's no fear of God before their eyes. Like, that's the big issue. might be a generic belief in God, like you believe there's a big guy upstairs or something along those lines, but that God produces no healthy fear in us. There's no reverence. There's no concern with what he actually thinks, what he has to say, That there's no fear of God. That's one of the big issues with cultural Christianity in Tallahassee. What is cultural Christianity? It's people who would claim to be Christians, and I'm not the judge of who is and who's not, nor do I want to be, they would claim to be Christians, and their reason for believing so, if you talk to them, is basically that they're not atheists, They're not Jewish, they're not Muslim, they're not Buddhist, and they try to be good people. Therefore, they're Christians. They're not defining their Christianity by the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And oftentimes, the biggest issue is they just don't fear God. Like, when I have struggles in my life, when I'm not living what I claim to believe, you can go deeper into the issues. I'm probably not fearing God. Like, what God has to say is probably not chief of my concerns in that moment. And he's indicting all humans here. He says, but now, apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is, he's telling us again, it's a person, is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, and there's no distinction. Then he tells us again this bad news, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then we see the semicolon, And the game begins to change in Romans. And he says they're justified. They're declared not guilty of their sins. They're forgiven. They're pardoned freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That all the law was pointing to this person of how actual righteousness could be achieved, not by our own efforts because we fail, but through a person and his efforts being Jesus. Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. It's really important how you think about God for all of us. Uh, One theologian said the most important thing about all of us is what comes to our mind when we think about God. Because that's going to set the trajectory for much of our lives, if not all of our lives, how we actually view and see God. I think it's really important that verse 26, for all of us, myself included, is a reality in our lives when it comes to how we see and view God. And that reality is that God is just, that he is holy, that because he's holy, he's not going to let sin go unpunished. And at the same time, he's also the justifier. He's the just and the justifier. He's also the one who brings about pardon and forgiveness and mercy. Because while we made a worship exchange and said, God, I don't want to worship you and worship your stuff, God made an exchange of his own. Or he exchanged our sin for the righteousness of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. I like to put it like this. Jesus became what we were. Leave that up there just for a minute. Jesus became what we were. What were we? Condemned, but condemned in our sin, so we could become what He is. What is He? Perfectly righteous. Now, do any of us achieve perfect perfect righteousness in our day-to-day lives? Of course not. But the way God sees us right now, if you're a Christian, is you're seen as someone who is not guilty of your sins, because justification is a legal term, because you've been legally declared by God to be righteous not because of you, but because of Jesus in our place. Jesus became what we were condemned in our sin so we could become what he is, righteous. And there was a verse that I think can kind of summarize what it means to be a Christian. I, I'm careful saying that because I'm sure there's more to it, but, but, and there's probably more verses, but for me, this verse just really sticks out. I think it'd be a great verse for you to memorize if you're trying to memorize some Bible verses. Romans chapter five, verse one, is to cling on this and believe this. Therefore, And therefore, it appears in the Bible to summarize what was just written before that. So he's going, okay, based on all we just read, the first four chapters, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not by our efforts, but by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He told us how peace with God is to be achieved. It's achieved through Christ. It's achieved through our justification. People are always on a search for peace with God and here we're told that peace with God doesn't come through yoga. A peace at 3 p.m. in the afternoon might. And it could be a good thing. I'm not knocking yoga. But peace with God doesn't come through yoga. Peace with God doesn't come through the deer stand. It might bring you some peace at 6 a.m. and be nice. But it doesn't come through that. Peace with God doesn't come through a pilgrimage. Does it come through a beautiful drive through the mountains? You know, all those things are helpful for to contemplate God and to think about God and to have some moments for ourselves. That's not how peace with God happens. I'm a Miami Hurricane fan. Peace certainly doesn't come through football. My poor boys went to the game yesterday against Alabama and got slaughtered. Okay, we were there. And my poor boys, because when I was growing up, Miami never lost. Like We didn't lose a home game from when I was like in kindergarten until I was in eighth grade. Literally. Now we lose all the time. My boys are like, why do we like them again? You know, so it's been it's it's been complicated. It certainly doesn't come through that. Peace with God comes through faith in Christ. It's a, it's a actual positional peace, not just a feeling of peace. Feelings of peace matter, but it's a positional peace. There's no hostility anymore between the creator and the created if you're in Christ. There's reconciliation, there's relationship. There's family, we're called his children, he our father. So we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We're justified in Christ by God's grace. And that's our new status. Our new status is that we're justified. We also have a new family. And that new family is no longer defined by bloodlines and not defined by ethnicity or borders or nations. Scripture's definitely I give a a strong push to the significance of nations and tongues and tribes. We're told that one day all of those will worship Christ, but God creates a new humanity in Christ where now there's a spiritual family that comes through common faith in Jesus. Listen to this from Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, that's what we were. the, The Bible really presents our sin, our worship exchange from Romans 1 as a sense of cosmic treason against God. That's how he views it. So We were enemies, but now we're reconciled. The hostile parties have come together uh, through the death of his son. Then he asks this question, or maybe one us to think about this, and how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? I mean, Jesus died for his enemies who were hostile towards him. Now that we're with him and we're part of his family, how much more is there in this life? And not only that, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do now through whom we have now received this reconciliation. We celebrate that. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We point to Jesus. That's why we sing songs on Sunday. We boast in Christ. That's why we come together on Sundays as a church. That's why the scriptures prescribe it as a regular rhythm for us. Like, what an awesome thing. We come together and we boast in Jesus Christ. Verse 20, the law came along to multiply the trespass. The law pointed us to our need for redemption because the law, which was a good thing, showed us our inability to keep it. But listen to this, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. What a statement. Where we sin, God shows grace upon grace upon grace. We could say that there's more grace in God than there is sin in us. Like according to Romans 5.20, if we were in Christ, our sin cannot outpace God's grace. It can't outrun it. It can't go further away. You know what else that tells me? No one is too far away from God. No one. No one is too far away from the reach of the love of God because where there's sin, there's grace, and grace multiplies it. That's great news for all of us that still sin. That God's grace is more and then Paul has this kind of nice little tactic here. Sometimes you'll see uh, maybe like a press conference where the press secretary whoever whoever's presenting, they'll anticipate ahead of time the questions that are going to be asked, and they'll answer the questions in their presentation, like kind of beat you to the punch that they think you're going to ask. Maybe if you do presentations at work, those kind of things, you you think about what's going to be asked, and in your notes you have that on there. Paul's anticipating that that people are going to say, things that we probably think regularly, I know I I, I can be tempted here sometimes, well, if God loves us, if there's more grace than I possibly could imagine, if whenever I sin, God shows mercy and grace and compassion, all things that are true, then why does it matter how we live? It's a good question. God loves us, who cares then, right? Paul's anticipating this he says in chapter six, verse one, what should we say then? This is all about the grace of God. He says right after chapter five, obviously. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Should we, since God loves us, should we kind of eat, drink, be merry for whatever? He goes, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Like if we know Jesus, he's saying, how can we live as if we don't? And even more, if we claim to know Jesus and live as, as we don't, then if we're gonna be really honest, maybe we really don't. He says, man, I don't wanna sin so grace may abound. I'm dead to that. God, save me from that. Now I wanna live in my new life with Jesus. He said this in verse 11, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God in Christ Jesus, a new life, a new humanity, a new purpose. In the next chapter, he gets very honest about the struggles of the Christian life. The struggles of the Christian life. He's not on some kind of ivory tower high horse talking down to people. He's not saying, be more like me because I'm the perfect Christian. He says, for I do not do the good that I want to do. But I practice the evil that I do not want to do. It's like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the right answers. I went to Sunday school. But I I just, for some reason, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just don't seem to be able to do it or desire to do it or carry it out. So it's like a tug of war is happening between his old life and his new life. Now, when you're a Christian, we are new creations. Our old life is gone spiritually in terms of positionally with God. He sees us as forgiven, justified, reconciled. But this side of heaven, our sinful nature still exists. So like Paul Paul writes to the Galatian church, walk in the spirit so you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. He knows those desires are real because he deals with them too. There's just some temptations there. I, there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. Like, like those are real things we struggle with, believing those lies that go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And I'm gonna date myself here, but at the 9 a.m. service, we have college students everywhere, and they're like, what is he talking about? Well, remember those cartoons like way back, like, when I I was growing up, probably a lot of you were growing up, where someone like Bugs Bunny would have like a moral dilemma for a moment. And all of a sudden, the angel would appear on one shoulder and the devil on the other. And the angel would usually have a harp and be playing and go, Bugs, do the right thing, do the right thing. You know, that kind of idea. And the devil has a pitchfork, like don't do the right thing. You know, that sort of stuff. And then Bugs had this kind of battle going on at the moment between the good and the bad sort of what's happening here. It's a tug of war between the life that Paul now knows and life that he still struggles with, but what's the solution? And thankfully, he's consistent in his beliefs and his writings. He says this, he's honest, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death and this fallen state? And then he redirects and knows where his hope is found. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm gonna fix on Jesus. Because he's the solution. Because if he's the one I trusted to save me, at the same time, he needs to be the one I trust to carry me through this difficult journey of life on this side of heaven. Romans chapter eight is probably my favorite chapter in all the Bible. And verse one, I mean, it's just, it, uh, it's incredible. I, 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 just, I just do not, when I read it to this day, it's still just, it still just makes me go, wow. Therefore, as based on everything we just wrote about, there's no, there's now, right now, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Think about the implications of those words. There is no condemnation. If you are a Christian because of Christ and in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. How amazing is that? Well, there is a list a mile long of reasons why that should not be the case. But God, but the work of Christ on our behalf. He tells us this, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, why is there no condemnation? It set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, what could the law not do because of our flesh? It could not produce righteousness. God did. We couldn't produce it, so guess who produced it for us? God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. So we see Christmas and Good Friday on display right there. He sent his son to be a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Perfect righteousness. For those who live according to the flesh had their minds set on the things of the flesh, but not those who are in Christ. Those who live according to the spirit had their minds set on the things of the spirit. Then Romans 8 tells us that we have the spirit of adoption, that God's adopted us into his family, and that we see him as our father. That's our relationship with him now. He's a perfect father. I'm a flawed dad. If you're a dad, I'm sure you're a flawed dad. I'm actually certain you are. We all are. He is not. We have a perfect heavenly father who calls us his sons and daughters. At the end of Romans 8 is what theologians have called for a long time the golden chain of salvation. Just some really rich stuff. Verse 30. We're told that those he predestined before the beginning of what we even consider to be time, those he determined... He also called. When you come to faith in Christ, you didn't think of it on your own. You were, the scriptures say you were called by God. Like He brought you to himself. It's the ultimate calling in life, the call to salvation. God drew you to himself. He used all these different details of your life that got you to that point when you would hear the good news of the gospel. He calls us to himself. That's how big his grace is. And those he called, when he calls you to salvation, he says he also justified, again, forgiven, declared not guilty given righteousness and then he also glorified and that's future, that's to come uh, one day when Christ returns and we receive our new bodies, new heavens, new earth and verse 31 is really important here. He says, what then are we to say about these things? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have a spirit of adoption. What do, how do we respond to that? He says, if God is for us, who is against us? And does it even matter if they are? And people might go, why does it matter? The whole like predestined call, does it really matter? Yes. And here's why. Romans 30, 8, 31 is making sense of verse 30. It's saying, these are the lengths that God has gone to before you. Like this is what God has accomplished since before the beginning of what we see as time for you, for his people. And in his sovereignty, in his glory, in his love, in his mercy, in his will and in his plan, God is for you and here's the evidence of it. That it's that big and it's that massive. And then he goes back to anticipating questions because people ask questions and we should. He says, what should we say then? He kind of likes that theme. Is there injustice with God? Like we read through Romans and see people who are guilty and those who God did not for whatever reason call to himself, like, is God unjust? He brings back those words, absolutely not. And sometimes the answers that that I'm looking for really are They're complex, but the real answer is not some cop-out answer. The answer sometimes is that I'm not God, and you're not either. Like, I don't have his thoughts. I only know his ways as much as he's revealed them through the scriptures. He says, for he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I'm gonna have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, I, it does not depend on human will or effort, and here's so important, but on God who, who shows mercy. Like, our salvation does not depend on us, it depends on God. And if that's true, then it means that I don't get any credit for it. That's why I boast in Christ, not myself. It's not a 50-50 thing. We didn't meet halfway. It's God who shows mercy. This is such amazing news and so hard to comprehend. Now, he's not saying we should never ask questions. We see throughout the scriptures, we look at in the book of Psalms, people lamenting, why God, why God, why God? When is this gonna stop? Why did this happen? Why do I have this pain? I mean, part of the faith journey is asking questions, is crying out to God. There's precedent throughout all of scripture for that. What he's saying here is, don't try to replace God with you functioning as God, saying this is how things are supposed to be. The scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. He tells us here why he raised up Pharaoh. He raised up Pharaoh for the purpose, this mighty ruler of the universe, the most powerful emperor of his day. God used him for God's glory. Why did God set the Hebrew captives and slaves free did he do it because he loved them absolutely did he he release them from captivity and do all those miraculous works because he made a promise to them and he wanted to keep his promise no doubt about it did he release those people because he had compassion and mercy on them as my grandpa used to say and I say it all the time here you bet your sweet potatoes but why did he ultimately do it he ultimately did it to make his glory known, to make his name great. Verse 19, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Is it, is it fair that people are still guilty when all this process? He goes, on the contrary. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Well, what does form say the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has The potter no right over the clay to make, from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor. And then Romans eleven gets a little tricky talking about the role of Israel in the future. And verse twenty nine it reiterates that God's calling on the Jewish people is irrevocable. Just as earlier, at the same time, we're told in chapter one that He's not rejected His people, but also it's clear from the whole storyline of Scripture that many, if not every single one of the promises made to ethnic Israel are now fulfilled in Christ and the church. So God has kept his promise to his people. They are the ones that abandoned him. He still has not abandoned them because everything that he has promised them has been fulfilled in Christ and Lord willing, there will be a remnant of people who come to faith in Christ. Here's what we do know for sure. A lot of mystery, here's what we know. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we know. Every single person on the face of the earth that calls on the name of the Lord for salvation will be saved. Then he gives a few nuggets, uh, some deeper thoughts, but also some little nuggets, little snippets of, of just how we respond and how we live this life now for Jesus as part of a new humanity, a new family. He says this in chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Now rejoice in hope. Because God's for you, you can be patient in affliction, Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints and their needs. Meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pursue hospitality. Open your lives. Open your home. Pursue these things. Why? Because we're part of a new humanity, a new family, and that God is for us. He says in chapter 13, let us walk with decency, as in the daytime. This is the original Nothing Good Happens After Midnight. As in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity or promiscuity. He just basically listed the freshman year of college there, right? Not in quarreling and jealousy. But he doesn't just give us a list of rules for the sake of rules, even though he would be allowed to do that as God. He says this, but instead, I got something much better for you. Remember the one who's for you, who has no condemnation for you, who became what you were so you could be what he is? Put on the Lord instead. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then in verse 15, chapter 15, as the book starts to come to a close, he says, here's my aim, here's my goal. He says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. So I will not build on someone else's foundation. We gotta get the gospel out to where it hasn't been heard. We put a lot of resources in the church, and by resources I mean finances, into getting the gospel out, into missionaries going overseas with the good news of the gospel. And one of the good questions I get sometimes, every now and then, maybe once or twice a year, someone will say, why do we put so much money and effort into going overseas for people, and I don't don't mean like a week-long mission trip, I mean people moving there, okay, to go plant churches, when there's people who aren't Christians in Tallahassee? That's a good question, and a fair question. And the answer is real simple. In Tallahassee, we're here. And our sister churches like Wildwood and St. Peter's and Townsville Baptist, they're here. We always need some new works, some new efforts, maybe some new urgency out of Christians and churches in our community to get the gospel out. But there's access, is what I'm saying, to the gospel here. There's access. In different countries in this world that are closed to the gospel, there is no access. There's not a city church. Like it does not exist. So we're gonna work hard here, but we are here. And we're gonna send and we're gonna go because all this amazing stuff we talked about this morning, it's only good news if it gets there on time. So we're working as hard as we can partnering with actually hundreds and hundreds of other churches cooperating together to send the gospel all around the world, we sent it to Florida State. Our college ministry had their kickoff service this past week at Tuesday night, right in front of the Unconquered statue on Langford Green. Several hundred college students from our that are city church, college students, bringing their friends, right next to the stadium, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not a lot of access on a secular campus. To thank God for those Christians who are doing the work there and getting after it and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We're gonna keep on going. Why? Because we believe this stuff. I'm a simple guy. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because I believe this stuff. When I fail in my faith or in my life or my responsibilities, they don't give God glory. What's happening? I'm having a memory lapse. That's really what, I have a sinful nature coming out, but I'm not remembering these things I believe. I'm buying into the lies. This world has more for me than God does. It all goes back to what we believe. And the heart that's been changed by God for his glory. He says, My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. Like that's what I want to do. And then in chapter 16, he says that the God of peace. It's like a send-off to the church. It gets down to this letter. Is going to crush Satan, who's a real being, under his feet. As in, God wins. So the one who is for us is the one who wins. And here's what's amazing. We get to be a part of that. So rather than Clay questioning the potter, let's go join him in the work that he's doing with the good news in Tallahassee and across the world. Believing that he's the one who saves and he's the one who gets the glory. And that's the best news ever. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful. For all we just read through Romans, a lot of scripture. So rich, so true. So true. So much good news. This Lord, I ask that we'll believe that together. That we won't have you just as a random category in our lives, but that we'll put on Jesus Christ, that you will, will be our lives. We're thankful that you so loved the world that you gave your only son. So believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and now there's no condemnation with those who are in Christ. Let that be our peace today, that we have peace with you because of Jesus. How awesome. Lord, I ask you this people who are here today to allow them to experience true peace in Christ. As we had this Labor Day weekend, allow them to rest, enjoy their family, all because they enjoy you and the good gifts you have given us. We pray at this time also for our health care workers in our community. Lord, we lift them up to you. We thank you for them. Lord, we pray for those in the hospital right now with sicknesses. We lift up Afghanistan to you. And the chaos there. Lord, in this broken world we are in, we look to Christ, the only one who can bring true peace. And we thank you that it's all true. In the name of Jesus. Amen.